So yeah, the reading is taken today from Judges chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 5. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adoni Bezek and fought against him, putting throughout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did for them, to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Deborah, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day, when she came to Othniel, she urged him to take her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor, since you have given me land in the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenites, went up from the city of Palms with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Homa. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites lived there with the Benjamites, Benjaminites. Now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. 
He then went to the lands of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasar did not drive out the people of Bashan or Tanakh or Dor or Ibleam or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nehalol. So these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulun did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Achor or Sidon or Alab or Axib or Helbar or Aphek or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive them out, the living in Beth Shamesh or Beth Anath. But the Nephilites, too, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined their day nights to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out Mount Heres, Ajalon, and Shalbim. But when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Sela and beyond. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give you to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down the altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I also have said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. They, there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. We're going to carry on to 3 verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, 
Yet they would not listen to these judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. The Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed these, those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previous, had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal-Hermon to Lebo-Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. This is God's word. Evening, everyone. If we've not met, my name's James. I'm one of the staff team here, and it's so good to see you here. Well done for putting up with a long reading. It's exciting stuff. It really is going to be, I promise you that. It's God's word. Um, and so as we come to it, let's bow our heads and pray and ask for his help. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you that you're a God who speaks, that you've not remained silent. And so we pray you'd give us hearts that are willing to listen to your word. Please would you help us to listen and to understand and to trust you and love you more because of all that we see in this book of Judges. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, I finally got around to begin watching the TV series uh, Chernobyl. I don't know if anyone's seen it. It's generated a lot of um, media coverage. Currently, the highest rated TV series on IMDb. And it's a tragic story. It really is a tragic story. If you know the, the history on the 26th of April 1986 in the Chernobyl nuclear power station in current day Ukraine, there was a nuclear meltdown. Operator errors and design flaws led to an uncontrolled nuclear reaction generating huge amounts of heat. And it spiraled and spiraled and spiraled into an explosion. And the consequences were devastating. What became the worst nuclear disaster in history? 400 times more radioactive material released than when the atomic bombs were dropped at the end of the Second World War. And if you've seen the, the TV series or know much about it, it is a harrowing thing. People killed in the aftermath, thousands who died later by long-term health effects. The city left a ghost town. Nuclear meltdown spiraling out of control and out of control. The consequences were devastating. And afterwards, there were lots of inquiries and, and research to try and make sure this never, ever would happen again. Because no one wants to live through such a, a nuclear meltdown. It's 
a disaster. And this evening, as we start a new book of the Bible over the summer, the book of Judges, if there's one word that you would pick to summarize the book of Judges, it would be the word meltdown. It would be the word meltdown. Not nuclear meltdown, but devastating spiritual meltdown. This book essentially is a documentary of 250 years of Israel's history. And it tells the story of the spiritual meltdown and the devastating consequences of that, of God's people. If you have your your Bibles open at page 242, you'll see that the, the book begins after the death of Joshua. Now, if you know your Bible history, Moses had been the great leader of God's people. The people were in slavery in Egypt, and Moses had led them out of Egypt, right up to the border of the promised land that God had said he'd give to his people. And after Moses had died, Joshua came next, and Joshua led the people into the land of Canaan. And he was overwhelmingly successful. See, that the people who inhabited that land had been wicked for years and years and years, hundreds of years. And God had been patient and patient and patient for hundreds of years with them. And then finally he said, enough's enough. I'm going to send my people in to bring judgment upon those nations and drive them out so that my people might live there. And in Joshua's lifetime, that campaign was overwhelmingly successful. Joshua is a book of triumph. But after the death of Joshua, which this book of Judges begins, what do you get is 250 years characterized by spiritual meltdown. If you like, chapter one begins with just war and marriage. And by the end of the book, what you have is civil war and rape. It is an utter spiraling down. It's a meltdown. But this is not simply an ancient story for back then, for the one or two of you who might be interested in 11th century BC history. No, no, the Apostle Paul would write to the New Testament church full of believers in Jesus Christ. In Romans 15, he wrote, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. That is, this ancient book is written to teach us today. And the very structure of the book shows it's designed to teach us. So the book's really split into three main sections, so chapter 1, verse 1, to 3, verse 6, which is what we're looking at this evening. And that section is designed to diagnose the problem. What caused the meltdown? Why did it happen? Then chapter 3, verse 7 to 16 is showing the effects. What happened afterwards? As you see, judges God sends to, to, to save the people, and they believe them for a while, and then they reject them, and it spirals down and down and down and down. And you see the effects of that spiritual meltdown. And then chapter 17 to 21 offers a solution to this spiritual meltdown. Four times in the final section, the author would write, in those days, Israel had no king. Israel had no king. Israel had no king. Israel had no king. Because what the author of the book wants to say is that that the the solution to the spiritual meltdown was that Israel needed a king who they could trust, one who would lead them. And so put simply, God's intention for you and for me today as we work our way through this book of Judges is to help us avoid going into spiritual meltdown. It's to help us avoid going into spiritual meltdown. And ultimately, that's always going to mean looking to Jesus, who is the king. And so this book is filled with hope, even as you read through about the the meltdown, because again and again, it points us to Jesus, who is the leader, the king, who can lead us away from spiritual meltdown. So if you're here and you're a Christian tonight and you want to know how to avoid going into spiritual meltdown, this is a book that's going to help you. It's going to help you to to look to Jesus and to trust him. So that's kind of the the big thing in the book. 
And this evening, we're going to cover that first section, which is diagnosing the spiritual meltdown that took place. Why did it happen? And we're looking at all of chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, verse 6. And you'll see on the back of your, your service sheets, there's an outline if you want to follow through. And we're going to work through that and see what the cause of this spiritual meltdown is. So firstly, if you look down at chapter 1, verses 1 to 19, you'll see a simple obedience. That is, they, people listen to God's word, trust God's promise, and obey God's command. Chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 1, verse 19. So let's dive in and have a look. So 1 verse 1, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up to first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I've given the land into your hand. So the book begins, well, the people begin by asking God, what what should we do? Lord, what do you want us to do? Joshua's dead, the leader's dead. What should happen next? How are we going to keep going? And the Lord says, Judah, that's one of the tribes of Israel. You're to go up first into the land. And so the people receive God's promise as well. So do you see verse 2? I have given the land into their hands. So here's the command. Judah shall go up. Here's the promise. I've given the land into their hands. And what you see in chapter 1, verse 1 to 19 is obedience. That is, if you're a doctor, the doctor is looking at the people going, this is what health looks like. Chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 1, verse 19 is about what spiritual health is like. And it's a simple obedience. And we see this clearly all the way through the 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 chapter. So if you look down at verse 4 to verse 7, you'll see one of these little stories that's um, peppered throughout the the chapter. Let's have a look. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Now, Adonai Bezek, he is the king of Bezek. That's what his name means, king of Bezek. And you can see from his boast in verse 7 that he is a powerful king. He's ruthless and powerful. There are 70 other kings that he has destroyed. He's, he's taken them to Jerusalem. They've put him, uh, he's put them there and subdued them. And Adonai Bezek has is this powerful, ruthless king. He has a big army, tens of thousands of people. And Judah has come into the land and they've been told they need to take this place where Adonai Bezek is in charge. But rather than running away and fleeing because he's a big, powerful, ruthless king, what do they do? Well, they listen to God's word, they trust God's promise, and they obey the command. That is, they do exactly what God has said. Say, God, I know you're with us and we're going to go with you and we're going to attack them. And look what happens. Powerful king, Adonai Bezek, is subdued. Now, it's worth noting, just as an aside, that while you and I might find this sort of military conquest quite a a gruesome thing, thumbs and big toes cut off, what's actually taking place is God's justice. See, we have to remind ourselves that at this point in history, not today, God's people are acting as agents of God's justice. You can read about how evil the nations in chapter 1 are all the way back in Deuteronomy. These were people who used to sacrifice children to their gods. It was utterly wicked. And God had been patient with them for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then finally, he says, no, no, now's the time where justice is going to be done. And so he sends in his people and they're bringing justice. And Adonai Bezek himself realizes justice is happening. Did you see that verse seven? He says, now God has paid me back for what I did to them. So Adonai Bezek understands it's justice. That's what's happening. 
But perhaps the, the most striking thing about this little encounter is just how simple the author wants us to see it as being, how simple it was. Just in the matter of three verses, this powerful, ruthless king is defeated. There's no fuss. It's just simple obedience. God said, Judah shall go up. I'll be with you. They trusted it. They went and it happened just as God had said. And you see this sort of simple obedience that goes on throughout the rest of this section. Do you notice just how many of the cities that Judah take? So if you look down at verse 8, the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and also took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. Jerusalem, one verse, down. Verse 9 and 10, they take Hebron, two more kings. Verse 11 to 15, Othniel takes Kiriath-Sephir. The actual victory is only nine words. Verse 13, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. Simple. They, they listen to God's word, they obey, they trust. And, and the rest of that little section, 11 to 15, is all about this, this thing where uh, Axar wants to uh, get a wedding present from her father. She doesn't go for the John Lewis gift list option. She goes for verse 14 um, and verse 15. Can I have some springs of water? That's what she wants. She takes it because she wants to settle in the land. It's a desert. She wants to stay there. God has given them this land and she wants to stay in the land. And so she gets given the water and they can stay there. And it's all about how they simply obey God's word. They listen to what he said, they trust his promises, and they obey. Verse 16, the, the Kenites take Arad. Verse 17, the men of Judah take Zephath. Verse 18, they take three Philistine cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron. And in these verses 1 to 19, nine cities taken, just a matter of verses. And the author wants to say, look how simple it was. Look how simple it was. God spoke, you trusted, and obeyed. God spoke, you trusted, you trusted, you obeyed. It was so, so simple. And you get the summary at the very start of verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. Everything seems to be going so, so well. They've heard God's word, they've trusted what he said, and they've obeyed. Space of 19 verses, they've taken nine cities without fuss. It's so simple. And to state the obvious, if the simple obedience of Judges chapter 1, verses 1 to 19 had continued, there would have been no spiritual meltdown. As I said, this is the, the doctor studying the healthy body going, this is what health looks like. So when the sick patient arrives, you can see, ah, that's what the problem was. And it, Judges begins with this picture of spiritual health, that is people listening to God's word, obeying, trusting what God's promises are, and obeying his commands. They should have listened to, trusted, and obeyed the Lord, and before long, the whole land would have been taken. And so that's where we start with a picture of this spiritual health. And before we move on to see what went wrong, it is just worth pausing to remind ourselves that, that today, when it comes to living as a Christian, things are no different. See, a healthy, functioning spiritual life looks like following this same simple pattern, listening to God's word, trusting God's promises, obeying God's commands. That's what the simple pattern of the Christian life is. Now, of course, the commands and promises are a little different to what the people of Israel had in Judges chapter 1. We don't need to go and take any cities and drive people out. That's, that's not what we have to do today. But the same pattern applies. We listen to God's word, we trust his promises, and we obey his commands. And I know this is basic, and you may have heard it many, many, many times before, but it's so easy to overcomplicate what the Christian life is about. 
Um, I, I grew up going to a, a church, and um, before the church service in the morning, we used to have a, a little Bible class that was called for um, teenagers. And when I was a teenager there, this Bible class was led by an older man in our congregation whose name was um, Rex. He, I think he must have been nearing retirement age, and we were teenagers, so to us he seemed just incredibly old and wise. And he'd been a Christian for decades and decades. And one of the things he used to try and encourage us to do um, as sort of young teenagers was to, to get into good patterns for living as a Christian. And so he used to, to teach us how to read our Bibles every morning. That's what he wanted us to do. And um, he, he used to give us a, a worksheet which had a few questions on it that we could ask of any passage of the Bible. And it's kind of stuck in my memory um, because on that, there were, there were two, at least two questions that I remember clearly that you, you to ask every time you read the Bible, every day, is there a promise to believe? Is there a command to obey? Every single time. That, that was the pattern of the Christian life he wanted us to have. You wake up in the morning, you read the Bible. Is there a promise to believe? Is there a command to obey? Every single day. And Rex used to, to say this thing. Um, uh, I heard him say it lots and lots of times. He said, I, I've been a Christian for lots and lots of years. And as I look back, and I, I think of the times where my Christian life has not been going well, most of the time I can trace that back to having stopped listening to God's word. That's what he said. And if you've, if you've ever um, heard a, an older Christian interviewed at the front, I, I reckon more than half the time they'll say something very similar. How do you keep going as a Christian? You listen to God's word, you trust what it says, and you obey it. It's the simple pattern of the Christian life. And it sounds so simple. But it is worth reflecting whether that is the pattern of your life at the moment. As the, the summer um, continues, it, it, we often have a time to just stop and reflect, don't we? And one question to ask yourself might be, is this the pattern of my Christian life at the moment? Is it to listen to God's word, to trust his promises, and to obey his commands. If you went to the doctor for a spiritual health checkup, is that what they would find as they looked at you? That you're listening to God's word, trusting his promises, and obeying his commands. And Judges chapter 1, verses 1 to 19, that's where it begins. That is what spiritual health looks like. But from there, it all goes wrong. And this is where we have to pay really close attention, because if we've seen what spiritual health is like, in the second half of the chapter, we're going to see what spiritual ill health is like. We're going to see a compromised obedience. So let's have a look at verse 19 again. So it says, The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it three sons of Anak. The Benjaminites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjaminites. Do you see the problem? They continue to take cities, but just not all the cities. You know, they take the hill country, but they don't take the plains. They take Hebron, but they don't drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. They sort of pick and mix. I'll take this city, but not this city. This one, but not this one. They're compromising on their obedience. They'll obey here, but not there. They'll take this city, but not that one. And this pattern of compromised obedience continues all the way through the chapter. Verse 27 to 36 gives a long list of cities that the tribe of Israel don't drive out. Just look at verse 27 as an example. The tribe of Manasseh. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan 
or Tanakh, or Dor, or Iblium, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. And so it continues all the way through the chapter. The, the simple obedience of listening to God's word, trusting his promises, obeying his commands, it stops, it's compromised. It's the sort of obedience that says, Lord, we'll obey you here, but we won't obey you here. We'll take this city, but not that city. And on the face of it, their reasons for compromising, they look so compelling. I mean, there are a whole load in the chapter, but I'll just pick out two. So if you look at, um, if you look at verse 19, have a look and can you see why they didn't obey? It says, they took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains. Why? Because they had chariots fitted with iron. That is, they come up to the people in the plain and they go, they've got chariots. They've got iron chariots. That's like the tanks of the day. They're too strong. Lord, they're big and they're powerful. Let's go after a different city instead. We'll just leave you guys alone. They're too strong. And you see a similar thing in, in verse 27. They don't drive out the Canaanites because the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. Lord, they're just too stubborn. They won't go. We, we can't get rid of them. Or again, verse 35, the Amorites were determined to hold out in Mount Heres, Agilon, and Shalbin. They're so stubborn. They're full of determination. They're just so strong. We, we can't get rid of them. They're too strong. And this is a big change from the obedience you see in the first half of the chapter. Remember powerful king Adonai Bezek? They come up to him, ruthless. He's destroyed 70 other kings, a massive army. There's not a problem with taking them because they're trusting the Lord and his promises. But here, no, 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 they're, they're just too strong. And in fact, when you think about it, God's promise to them had said, I will be with you. That is, this is the God who had rescued them out of the land of Egypt. Pharaoh, do you remember him? He, he was pretty stubborn, wasn't he? He was pretty determined to not let the people go. He had big chariots of iron that chased after them as God finally rescued them out of the land. And God literally parted the seas and the seas fell down on the chariots and God rescued them. And this God is still with them today. And they're going, no, 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 sorry, those few chariots, they're, they're, too, they're too much. We, they're too strong. They've forgotten the Lord. They're not trusting his promises anymore. So there, there's, there's one reason why they didn't keep on obeying. They're too strong. You'll see a second reason if you look at verse 28, down at verse 28. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Do you see the, the reasoning? Why drive the Canaanites completely when we can, we can use them as forced labor? You know, someone's got to chop down the wood. Someone's got to plow the field. Someone's got to fetch water. Someone has to do all those hard jobs that none of us really want to, to do. So rather than listening to you, Lord, and doing what you said, which was to drive them out, why don't we just kind of keep them under control? They can be useful to us. We'll keep them under control. And this seems like a really common excuse. Zebulun does the same, verse 30. Naphtali does the same, verse 33. Dan does the same, verse 35. No, Lord, I know you said drive them out completely, but you know what? We, we think we've got it under control. We'll, we'll keep them as forced laborers. Let's not do exactly what God says. They could be very useful to us. And do you again see the big change from the first half of the chapter? The people go in and drive them out completely in the first half, but in the second half, no, no, excuses, excuses, excuses. They're too strong. We can keep them under control. 
here are the two reasons they have for compromised obedience, where they'll obey God here, but not there. And then at the start of chapter two, the Lord appears and we get to hear his verdict on what's happened. Let's have a read. Chapter two, verse one. It says this, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps to you and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Do you see? First half, obedience, simple obedience. Second half, compromised obedience. We'll obey you here, we won't obey you there. And what does God think of that? Not happy. Not happy at all. He says, I've made a covenant with you. I chose you. You are my people. I saved you. I rescued you. I loved you. And yet, what have you done? You've disobeyed me. And if you look at verse three, you'll see what the Lord says is going to happen. He says, now, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps to you and their gods will become snares to you. That is, because you haven't listened to me and obeyed my voice, these people who are remaining in the land, they're going to be like a trap to you. They're going to trip you up in your spiritual life. And from there, the meltdown begins and it spirals down and down and down throughout the rest of the book of Judges. Their compromised obedience, the obedience said, I'll obey you here, but not here, Lord, spirals down and down and down. Compromise. And before we get too quick to point the finger at these silly Israelites who didn't keep on obeying the Lord, I wonder how many Christians today might fall into this same sort of mentality. Of course, we aren't fighting a military war, but we are all engaged in a spiritual war against the sin and evil that lies within our own hearts. But I wonder how many of us have that same mentality when it comes to obeying the Lord. The, I'll obey you here, Lord, but not here mentality. I'll subdue this ungodly pattern of behavior, but not this one. I'll let Jesus be Lord of this area of my life, but not that one. It's very easy to compromise our obedience to God in the spiritual war we are all engaged in if we're Christians. And our excuses may just be the same as those, who, those that the Israelites had. I wonder how many conversations like this have taken place in, in the head of a, a Christian just before we fall into sin. What about this one? The culture that we, we live in is just so sexualized. I mean, I can't even catch a tube without being bombarded by adverts of men and women not wearing enough clothes. And you should hear the things my colleagues talk about over lunch that they encourage me to watch on the TV in the evenings. And anyway, God has made me to have these desires and it's just too strong. I can't ever really fight against that. Lord, it's too strong. I can't fight against this sin. Or what about this one? Uh, Lord, I know I lost my temper too quickly with my colleague in the office, but you know, it doesn't happen very often, does it? I've got it under control mostly. And besides, actually, when I get angry, things get done in the office. It sort of makes things happen. It's quite useful to me to be able to be angry. And I don't want to get a reputation for being weak. It's okay. It's under control. It's not, I'm not going to become a really, really angry person like those people. I've got it under control, just a little bit of anger. And it's useful, so I'll keep it. It's okay. I've got it under control. 
Lord, that the sin is too strong. Lord, I've got it under control. It could be useful to me. I wonder how many might make excuses like that. And the Lord is not happy with our compromised obedience the same way as he was not with those in the book of Judges chapter 1. And so again, as we take our spiritual health checkup at some point over the summer, it is worth asking the, the question for you and for me, is there a particular sin? Is there a, a particular pattern of behavior that we, we know is ungodly, but we're compromising on our obedience? A particular area of life where we're making excuses. If Judges chapter 1, the first half, shows us what spiritual health looks like, simply listening to God's word, trusting his promises, obeying his commands, the second half shows us what spiritual ill health would look like, the sort of ill health that leads to a meltdown, and it's compromised obedience. Lord, I'll obey you here, but I won't obey you there. A simple obedience replaced by a compromised obedience. Now, at this point, we could, we could just stop here and go, okay, right, we're going to go home. We're going to try really hard now to have, a sim- to have a simple obedience and not the compromised one. But that would be to miss out on the, perhaps the most crucial thing that Judges chapter 1 to 3 verse 6 teaches us. I think that the title on your, your sheet is, um, is slightly wrong. I'm going to change that for you if you have a pen and want to change that. We're going to be thinking about the God who will not compromise. We think about the God who will not compromise. Let me show you where that is in chapter 2, verse 6 to chapter 3, verse 6. We're just going to dive into a couple of verses there. And this really is the, the most crucial thing that the whole book of Judges will teach us. See, Judges 2, verse 6 to 3, verse 6, it, it shows the spiritual meltdown that happens once the people have compromised. If you just look at verse 11, you'll see, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, the false gods of the people. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And then verse 17, again, they wouldn't listen to the judges that God had raised up to save them, but again, they prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned away from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. And if you flick over the page to verse 19, when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. For the people of Israel, the pattern of the book of Judges is a spiral down. They sin, God raises up judges, they sin even more, they sin even more, they sin even more, down and down and down. But the question is, what is God doing throughout all of this? What is he doing in Judges chapter 2 and throughout the rest of the book? And I don't know if you picked it up as we read earlier, but there is a, a massive tension that lies right in this passage and through the whole of the book of Judges. And it is the tension between God's justice and between God's love. It appears on the surface of this chapter. What is God going to do when his people keep on sinning? If you just look at verse 12, you'll see one response that we have that the Lord has. So if you look down at verse 12, what, what does the Lord do when Israel disobeys? At the very end of the chapter, it says, they arouse the Lord's anger. 
there is God's anger. Just as God had been angry with the people who used to live in the land when they had been wicked, and God had sent people to judge them and to kick them out, now Israel are doing exactly the same thing. Okay, what's God going to do? Back then, he kicked out those people. What's he going to do with Israel? And it says, well, he's angry. He's angry with them. And that's right, isn't it? God is a God of justice. He has to be angry. He has to be fair with both. He's angry with them. Verse 14, what does he do? In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hand of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. So you see, people in the past, they were evil. God said, okay, my people are going to come and bring judgment. They won't be able to resist you. And so Israel kicks them out. And now Israel are disobeying. So God is angry and says, well, here's some more people who are going to come. And they're going to kick you out. Justice. God, God is a God of justice, right? And that's a good thing that he's fair and brings justice against evil. But look what else you see. Look at God's love. Verse 16. This is a surprise. The people are, are, are disobeying. God has sent justice on them. But verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Okay. So, so, so God's brought justice upon them, but he's saving them. Or verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as that judge lived because the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. This is love. He sees his people in distress and goes, I'm going to save them. The people who he'd promised to be with, he'd made a covenant with them. He now says, I'm going to save them. And then he saves them and the people disobey again. And so he justice again, but then he says another judge, and so he loves them, and then justice, and then love, and just That's the whole pattern of the book. Lo justice, love, justice, love. And you think, how does this tension work? Which one is going to win out? Surely the Lord must compromise upon one of them. Surely he must compromise upon either his justice or his love. Surely he, he must compromise upon his love, and he, he'll just let their wicked disobedience leave leave uh, go to where it's supposed to go to that is to justice and just drive them out of the land surely he, he must do that he'll compromise upon his love and he's going to turn away the people and drive them out of the land or maybe he's going to just compromise upon his justice and say i love the people and let's just forget about their sin and i just love them and it's okay they can keep on saying i just love them and i just love them which one's he going to do Surely he must compromise upon one of those things, his justice or his love. That's the tension that, that lies at the heart of this passage and indeed the whole of the book of Judges. And in fact, it's a tension that runs right the way through the Bible. Because human beings never obey God perfectly. We never have a 100% record of the first half of the book of Judges chapter 1. We never listen to God's word trust his promises and obey him perfectly. All of us at some point have a compromised obedience to him. And so the question is, is God going to compromise upon his justice or his love? Which one? Which one? It's a tension that seems to run right the way through the book of Judges and indeed the whole Bible. And as you follow the path of this question through the Bible and through the book of Judges until you get to the New Testament, you find there is Jesus Christ walking upon the face of the earth. And Jesus Christ is the only one who has never, ever compromised upon his obedience to the Lord. 100% record of perfect obedience, listening to God's word, trusting his promises and obeying his commands. Jesus did that all the way through his life. And as you 
you, you follow the, the, the story of this tension of God's justice and his love, and you find that it ends up at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you've never understood the cross before, it's the most glorious thing ever, more glorious than a, a Wimbledon final, a cricket World Cup. What goes on at the cross, you find that the tension is finally resolved. See, at the cross, King Jesus bears the full measure of God's anger for the sin of his people. He takes full justice for his people's sins. He takes justice. He's driven out, not from the land, but from out of God's loving presence. He experiences the horrors of hell, and he takes sin's punishment for all of his people's sins. God's justice is done at the cross. And yet, he does that in the place of his people, his people who persistently compromise upon their obedience again and again and again. And he does that so that his people can be forgiven and so that his people can be loved. So that these people might never, ever have to face the justice they deserve for themselves. It is the greatest demonstration of love this universe has ever seen. And as you follow the story of God's justice and love through the Bible, you find that at the cross, both are upheld and God will not compromise upon either. His justice is upheld and his love is upheld so that his people who trust in him might be free and might be loved forever. It's the best news for a compromised people that God will not compromise because it means that we can be forgiven and loved for all the times that we have compromised. See, when we fail, and no matter how persistently we fail and how deeply we fail, as we come back to the cross and as we look to King Jesus, we find there that he offers us forgiveness, a perfectly just forgiveness, because he's taken our punishment for us. But also as we look, at our, look to the cross and we see God's justice, we see how much he hates sin and how he must punish it. And it makes us turn away from the sin that we're so desperate to compromise upon. As we look at the cross, we see God's love and God's justice. And that is what enables us as people who always go back and forth between obedience and compromise, obedience and compromise. That's what gives us stability and hope as Christians. And so this book of Judges, in its opening chapter, even as it diagnoses the spiritual problem, points us back to the cross and to the Lord Jesus, who is the King. And that's what the book of Judges will do again and again and again. Even as we see the, the failure of God's people, it will lift our eyes and look to King Jesus. And we'll see him and what he has done for us. And so because God will never compromise upon his love and his justice, we can have hope even as we read Judges chapters 1 and 2. And as we see spiritual meltdown in action. Because we can go back to the cross and we can trust and we can have forgiveness for all our sins. And we can see God's justice and we can keep fighting against the compromises that are in our lives. So as we come to an end, I hope you've seen something of how wonderful God is, that he will not compromise his love or his justice. And that we see that clearly at the cross. And my prayer for you all is that as we go out, we would keep on fighting to obey and obey and obey and obey, looking to the cross knowing that we have forgiveness in Christ. So let's pray now that God will enable us to do that. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, thank you that there is so much that we can learn from an ancient book. That the struggles that your people had back in the 11th century BC are still struggles that we face today. And yet we praise you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that in him we see your love and your justice. And we see them both upheld in an uncompromised fashion. And Father, we pray that you would help us keep on looking to the cross so that we might listen to your words, trust your promises, and obey your commands every day. Please help us to do this by the power of your Spirit and for the glory of your name. Amen.